I started this podcast about a year ago as a means to clarify and share my thoughts on the nature of consciousness. At the time, I could not have predicted how far afield my investigation would take me. In particular, I didn't expect to produce this many episodes on my own. I guess I thought I might move on to another project, perhaps with another person, or develop the podcast into some other format. That still might happen, but somehow I'm not yet finished doing this, and I might continue for quite some time. There is always more terrain to explore. So far, I have not found a line of reasoning or evidence that convinces me of the mistakenness of my own theory. I stand by the temporally integrated causality landscape, at least so far. In this episode, I will talk about it in terms of an analogy. Consciousness is a unified composition of contents. As I sit here, I have a visual picture of the world in front of me. My desk, my books, my computer, my room. I can hear sounds, the clicking of the keyboard keys, the low mumbling of some type of media playing in another room, undefined muffled voices, perhaps a TV show. I hear an engine outside, somewhere distant, a car or perhaps an airplane. I see my hands in front of me and I can feel the pressure on my fingertips as I tap the keys. It's a bit cold in here. This feeling colors the sensation on my face and hands. I'm chewing a piece of nicotine gum, cinnamon. Its texture morphs as my tongue compresses it against my teeth. The flavor spreads across the surface of my tongue and palate. I am thinking about what I am writing and there is a tone of mood in the background. All of these phenomenal elements can be broken down into qualia, but I experience them unified all in one place, one conscious composition. For the purpose of illustration, we will construct in our minds a mosaic. We begin with a massive supply of simple little tiles and a large square canvas upon which to place them. Let's make this canvas very big. Imagine it the size of a mural. These tiles are a motley assortment of shapes and colors. Here is a little square of blue tinted glass. There an orange triangle made of clay a white porcelain rectangle, a wooden piece, a green circle. We have in our supply every combination of colors and textures and shapes. They can be assembled to build any kind of image we might want upon our canvas. Now that we have established these elements, let us imagine using them in this way to compose a piece of artwork. First, we can put together two or three or a dozen tiles to form a small structure. We might take five wooden squares and curve them around to make an arch. We might make a pyramid with four tiles at the bottom, then three above that, then two above that, and cap it with a triangle tile if we want. We can make this a uniform sandstone or a pied mixture of colors and textures. We could make the pyramid striped such that each row is uniform but differs from the other rows. You get the point. And we can place these arrangements anywhere we like on the canvas. Since our canvas is so large and our individual tiles are so small, we might construct figures like arches and pyramids and then use those to make larger objects. You can imagine making a tree. The bark is made out of repeating pyramid motifs. It might take scores of pyramids to make the trunk of a medium-sized deciduous tree. Suppose we use a brickwork of rectangular tiles to make long branches. We might take two triangular tiles to make each leaf, a little diamond shape for each one. Maybe we want it to have a, the fiery colors of autumn so we can mix and match various colors of red and orange and yellow and arrange them around the branches. We can move about from place to place and build various structures and objects such that when we are finished we have composed an entire landscape. Crystalline mountains stretching along the horizon, a blue sky with puffy clouds, a forest of trees, a shimmering lake, and down by the lake there is a wooden cottage. 
A rowboat is moored at a little dock nearby. There are ducks in the lake. The final composition is, on one hand, quite simple. A lovely and familiar rustic landscape. On the other hand, the composition is exceedingly complex. Each figure and object is composed of smaller figures and objects, which are, in turn, made out of different shapes and colors of tiles. Now that we have completed our art project, I'll make some observations. First, the unified whole is more than the sum of its parts. You cannot reduce the landscape on the canvas to its tiles without losing information. Otherwise, we could take all the tiles we used off the canvas and drop them in a box and subsequently claim that the box contains a picture of a forest and a mountain and a cottage by a lake. Clearly, none of that is in the box, and an artist could take the tiles out of the box and create a totally different mosaic. Furthermore, that's exactly what an artist would do. It is inconceivable that the artist would reconstruct the same landscape we did without exacting instruction or previous knowledge. I argue, in common with a lot of neuroscientists in the field, that consciousness is an emergent property of the thalamocortical system in the brain. Our mosaic is thus analogous to it on this point. Second, there are many different objects arranged in a specific way. Some objects are nested within others. An example is the pyramids that we use to make the tree trunk. This is an example of composition. In consciousness, we have individual elemental qualia like redness and roundness or whatever. Individual notes of sound make up the voices or the music or the purring of an engine. Complex sounds such as these are composed of elemental auditory qualia. The qualia are analogous to the tiles of our mosaic. Each leaf in our tree is made of two triangular tiles to make a diamond shape of some color. If we look at a real tree in the world, we might notice that the leaves are composed of a rustling motion, some color, some shadow, some shape. These qualities are bound together in each leaf that we see. The leaves are bound together in the object of the tree, which is positioned in space relative to other objects in view. A diamond-shaped red leaf in our art piece has a particular place, too. If it weren't in the context of the branches and the trunk, it wouldn't really resemble a leaf at all. If we place the same pair of tiles in the area of the sky, we might readily see a kite instead. Since a real kite is much larger than a real leaf, we would probably sense that the tile kite is at a great height and distance. So again, we have a nice analogy to consciousness. The mosaic is more than the sum of its parts, and it is composed of specific individual elements. The tiles, like qualia, are dependent on one another in the sense that they bind together spatially to produce the image of objects. Third, the mosaic is composed of meaningful content. In an important sense, the picture that we have constructed on our canvas is a realistic one. Landscapes like this one are part of our lives. We might see a tree-lined street with a sidewalk and houses and a dog standing on the corner next to a stop sign. Alternatively, we might see a curving road with rolling farmland spotted with livestock and a windmill in the distance. Such sights are commonplace. The arrangement of tiles has not been arbitrary. Rather, it shows recognizable objects and features, a cottage and clouds and a rowboat. This is the magic of art. We have taken plain tiles and made an evocative image with meaning. The meaning would be quite different if the cottage were in the clouds and the forest was in the lake. But it would still be meaningful. A surreal effect might emerge. A sense of novelty might arise. The experiences we have are composed of nested meanings. We don't see plain colors and shapes and textures. Rather, we see complete images filled with context. Fourth, we can see the mosaic from the bottom up and from the top down. We seem to immediately see the gist, a landscape with mountains and a forest and a cottage. 
Only after further observation do we notice that the tiles of which the image has been composed. This is just like conscious experience. You see and recognize the objects in a real landscape. It is a different but perfectly ordinary cognitive move to note the colors and textures that make up the landscape's features, or to note the individual songbirds within the orchestra of coexisting sounds. When you look at one of those montages of a famous person made out of small photographs, you see more or less at once both the recognizable person and the photographs out of which they are made. Finally, the mosaic image is an illusion. There is, after all, no forest or lake or cloud-filled sky on the canvas at all. There are only tiles. The meaning comes from the way those tiles are arranged to provide you with an impression. This is the key analog to consciousness. The conscious mind contains an illusory landscape. Suppose you are looking at a real landscape in the world. Let's imagine looking at the curving road with rolling hills, with cows grazing and a windmill in the distance. Unlike our mosaic, this is an actual landscape in the countryside. Our experience as we gaze upon this vista is a visual composition. We see the texture of grass and earth upon the hills. The road where we stand is dark and cracked asphalt. The windmill is painted black and white and slowly turning in the breeze. The cows are moving casually from place to place. The cows and the windmill and a curving road, these things are real. I'm not making any anti-realist claims. But the vision you have as you gaze upon this landscape, that is an illusion. Cows and windmills and roads do not look like anything. Looking like something is not a physical property of the thing looked at. It is a product of an integrated brain system. Such brain systems produce visions. They produce the colors and the textures and the shapes and the sense of motion, all of it. What kind of a brain system could do that? We know that different regions of the cerebral cortex are responsible for these aspects of visual experience. How then could we experience them as unified? The features of our visual experience are specified as well as being unified. Just like the mosaic, the unification is necessary for understanding the scene. The meaning of the scene and the meanings of the things within it are all established within a context of an overall visual experience. In his book Galileo's Error, Philip Goff promotes the idea of panpsychism, but notes that any panpsychist theory must contend with the combination problem. Goff writes, quote, while the consciousness of the split-brain patient is divided in two, there is still deep unity within each of these isolated pockets of experience. All aspects of the consciousness of the left hemisphere, colors, shapes, depth, perception, etc., are bound together in unity, as are all aspects of the consciousness of the right hemisphere. But we might imagine the unity of each hemisphere further disintegrating, collapsing into smaller and smaller pockets of separate experience. Assuming the truth of panpsychism, we will eventually, if this process continues, get down to the consciousness of the particles making up the brain. The result, a brain with radically decombined consciousness. Reverse this process and you've got mental combination. What kind of brains have radically disunified consciousness? What we essentially are imagining here is the brain of a corpse. For the panpsychist, there is still consciousness in a dead brain in the sense that each of the fundamental particles making it up is conscious. But in the absence of living, cognitive processes going on within it, the consciousness of the particles is not bound together in a single unified experience. To solve the combination problem, we just need to work out what is going on in the living brain to unify together the otherwise isolated experiences of particles. Most panpsychists think of the combination problem as, how do you get from the consciousness of particles to the consciousness of the brain made up of those particles?" Unquote. 
This to me is a serious problem for Goff's kind of panpsychism, one in which material particles are each conscious. Whether that is true or not, it doesn't help with the problem of human consciousness. As Goff points out, consciousness is unified. A classic philosophical idea is that which Daniel Dennett decries as the Cartesian theater. According to this view, there is a soul, or a homunculus, or some single thing located in or associated with the brain. You and I are really the homunculus and not the human organism. The data that come in through the eyes and ears and skin are processed and shown in the form of display for the benefit of the homunculus. I don't think this idea is particularly popular in today's philosophy of mind, but this is classic dualism, and it makes no sense to me. It moves the problem from here to there rather than offering a plausible solution. We were flabbergasted by how the human animal is conscious, and the dualist solution would be that the human animal isn't conscious at all. It's the human soul or the homunculus which is conscious. Okay, the question has already been begged. How then is the homunculus conscious? It's the same old problem as intelligent design. According to such a view, complex things have been created by a designer. Look at animals and plants and people. Look at all the things they can do. This could not have arisen by natural processes. They must have been designed by God. All right, but a question has again been begged. Since an omniscient creator can do complex things, namely designing complex creatures, according to the presupposed logic of the argument, this thing, God, must have been designed. What thing designed it? This reasoning doesn't work, so this explanation for human consciousness is unhelpful. Even if it would be a useful metaphor to consider a homunculus inside the brain where all of the disparate networks which give rise to conscious contents send output, there is, as it turns out, no such location in the brain. The thalamocortical system is highly interconnected such that neurons form direct outgoing connections with perhaps hundreds of others and indirect connections with the majority of others. However, the visual neurons that deal with motion or contours or color or facial recognition are all in different places. This pattern also holds for other modalities. In the Society of Mind, Marvin Minsky seems to recognize this fact. He writes, quote, You know that everything you think and do is thought and done by you. But what's a you? What kinds of smaller entities cooperate inside your mind to do your work? To start to see how minds are like societies, try this. Pick up a cup of tea. Your grasping agents want to keep hold of the cup. Your balancing agents want to keep the tea from spilling out. Your thirst agents want you to drink the tea. Your moving agents want to get the cup to your lips. Yet none of these consume your mind as you roam about the room talking to your friends. You scarcely think at all about balance. Balance has no concern with grasp. Grasp has no interest in thirst, and thirst is not involved with your social problems. Why not? Because they can depend on one another. If each does its own little job, the really big job will get done by all of them together, drinking tea. How many processes are going on to keep that teacup level in your grasp? There must be at least a hundred of them, just to shape your wrist and palm and hand. Another thousand muscle systems must work to manage all the moving bones and joints that make your body walk around. And to keep everything in balance, each of those processes has to communicate with some of the others. What if you stumble and start to fall? Then many other processes quickly try to get things straight. Some of them are concerned with how you lean and where you place your feet. Others are occupied with what to do about the tea. You wouldn't want to burn your own hand, but neither would you want to scald someone else. You need ways to make quick decisions." Unquote. It is no surprise that Marvin Minsky is a computer scientist the way he talks about controlling behavior. I agree with him about the human brain only in part. I think that disparate brain networks must be carrying out independent functions in parallel. 
That might include what he calls agents, like grasping agents and balancing agents. But he says that these, quote, entities cooperate inside your mind, unquote. That, I think, goes too far. If you must refer to them as entities, at least don't claim they're entities of the mind. The mind is conscious. And as we have seen, it has unified experience. When I am standing, there are many unconscious regulators of my posture. But these regulators are not in my mind. I am not conscious of them, nor would I know how to control them effectively. In fact, if I tried to seize willful control of my posture by means of voluntary muscle movements, I would be pretty poor at doing it. I know how to swim, but I do not know how I do it. There are a lot of coordinated movements that I have no knowledge of. So at best, these agents can be thought of as Koch is named zombie agents. Furthermore, Minsky really seems to imply agency of a willful kind when he says, for example, quote, your moving agents want to get the cup to your lips, unquote. I would suggest that this is like saying my electric screwdriver wants to turn screws. My electric screwdriver does what it was engineered to do. And the networks controlling my fine muscle movements do what they evolved to do. The only agent that wants to drink the cup of tea is me, the unified conscious being. Still, Minsky is onto something important. If the networks that handle the individual processes of perception and behavior are not made to cooperate in some way, the organism will not function well. Clearly, networks send axonal output to other networks, and their connections must be determined by development and plasticity. Contemporary theories of consciousness deal with this problem, the unity of consciousness, in different ways. The major theories are Global Neuronal Workspace and Integrated Information Theory, IIT. I will give a rough and ready summary of how they do it. Global Neuronal Workspace Theory says that the many specialized networks broadcast a kind of summary to the other networks. Altogether, this broadcast of data is a global workspace. For me, this kind of works as a metaphor, but taken literally, it fails. What is consciousness, then? We know that it is unified, but how do a lot of action potential signals from the various local networks to the other various local networks produce that unity? They are literally separate things. If they were all broadcasting to a common location, then this might work, but the evidence is in and there is no such place in the brain. IIT recognizes that consciousness is unified and that therefore something physical in the brain must be unified to explain it. For IIT, this is integrated information or integrated cause-effect power. I like this idea a lot better, which is the reason my theory looks more like IIT than global workspace. But I have also claimed, along with others, that conscious contents are meaningful, dynamic, and continuous. This is the place where I seem to part company with IIT, because for IIT, the physical substrate of consciousness at any one moment is a precise, maximally irreducible constituency of neuronal elements over a precise amount of time. This means that the substrate of consciousness now is composed of different neurons than it is a moment later, namely those neurons across which there is maximally irreducible cause-effect power. This means that consciousness is not continuous, but composed of discrete moments, like frames. It also means that the contents are not dynamic. They are all built into the maximally irreducible structure. Thus, as far as IIT is concerned, consciousness exists to itself. In contrast, in a nutshell, Global Neuronal Workspace says that the contents of consciousness exist to each other. According to my theory, the contents of consciousness exist to consciousness as a whole. I'll give you a brief summary of the temporally integrated causality landscape and see if I can make sense of the mosaic analogy for you. The temporally integrated causality landscape, or TICL, is a theoretical framework for how the brain produces consciousness. 
Like IIT, the theory is built upon the observation that when we are conscious, the thalamocortical system is highly integrated while also containing differentiated neuronal activity in different locations. According to the TICL, a large portion of the thalamocortical system, that portion which is well integrated, consists of millions of neurons, each having direct or indirect causal power on the activities of the others. As a result, each neuron has the power to change the firing of each of the others in the near future, as well as its own firing in the near future. It is thus both an agent of cause and effect in the thalamocortex. Together, these millions of neurons make up what I call the system. The amount of integrated causality across the system is something greater than zero over some period of time, maybe a half second. This, I suggest, is the canvas. Any number of distinct subsystems within the system can occur. A subsystem is a group of neurons within the system which have upon each other a higher level of temporally integrated causality than what is occurring across the whole system. Temporally integrated causality is a simple concept I devised. It just means the amount of integrated activity across the neurons over the amount of time it takes to achieve it. The subsystems are responsible for the contents of consciousness. Each subsystem results in a piece of content. The subsystems can be nested within one another or cross over upon other subsystems to give more complexly meaningful contents. So I'll sum that part up. There's an integrated system of neurons, which contains even more integrated neuronal groups. Inside one of those more integrated groups, there can be an even more integrated smaller group. The reason that contents emerge is that they are distinguishable from the background noise. Such small, nested little subsystems are the tiles. A subsystem containing those smaller subsystems is a figure composed of tiles, like the arches formed of several wooden tiles, or the pyramids made of stacked colored squares. An even larger subsystem composed of many neurons forms an object, like the tree or the cottage in our mosaic. The interesting thing about the TICL is that it says that the point of view is that of the system as a whole. I said the system is the canvas in our analogy. Thus, from the point of view of the whole canvas, there is a whole landscape of features, all unified together. I propose that we are integrated structures of causality. We experience the meanings of our internal causal dynamics. We conscious minds actually contain the contents we experience. They are not out there in the world, but within each of us. We are not human organisms looking out upon the landscape, but conscious systems witnessing them within ourselves.